We also got a chance to speak with PBS host and former White House press secretary, Bill Moyers. Thank you, Doug. I'm glad to be with you. My favorite section of your book is part three, the media. You Uh, noted an example of what passes for journalism these days that uh, sums up uh, our current sorry state. Could you talk about the, quote, news item, unquote, of an incident at the Santa Monica Pier that stood out to you? Oh, yes. This was a number of years ago. This crossed my desk. It was a little story about a man who had drowned off the pier there. And so the the press rushed in to, to cover it and, uh, and wrote a lot of stories about it, but it uh, turned out to be uh, more about the uh, the celebrity. I forget who it was at the moment. Michael My, Jackson's Mike. plastic surgeon, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Associated Press story. Here's the lead exactly as it was written. Quote, Michael Jackson's plastic surgeon jumped into the ocean <laughs> to save a suicidal man earlier today as Hollywood Madam Heidi Flies called 9-11 for help. And I thought I was reading a joke at first, something mm-hmm. the editors of beg your pardon, the college satire magazine uh-huh. might have cooked up. Uh-huh. But then I read on, and uh, it mentioned four people in the lead. One, the pop star Michael Jackson. He had absolutely nothing to do with the episode and wasn't even at the scene. But his plastic surgeon happened to be attending a party nearby that was also attended by, by Heidi Fleiss, the Hollywood prostitute who called herself, who herself became a celebrity mm-hmm. when she was convicted of running a call girl ring. She's just a bystander in the story. And all she does is punch in three digits on a telephone number to get the 9-11 people there. But like Michael Jackson, she gets her name mentioned because she's famous. Further on down the story is the man who leaped in to pull off, pull off the rescue he doesn't give it his, even get his own name into the lead. Yeah. And wholly lost in the shovel, never named, is the real protagonist of the story, the poor man down there in the water, the victim himself, who, as I say in the book, isn't identified at all. Now, it, you know, here, one more hapless joke, you citizen, whose story wouldn't even matter to the media at all unless it could be tied to some celebrity. And I have on my desk here right now, Doug, a study done by the Project for Excellence in Journalism, mm-hmm. funded by the Pew Foundation, which says that between 1977 and 1997, the number of stories in the mainstream media about celebrities increased from the one in 50 to mm-hmm. one in 14. I mean, right. we are so obsessed with celebrities, yes. trivia, nonsense, where we can no longer get to the serious news. Well, allow me to insert a very funny quote you have in your book from George Bernard Shaw. Journalists are unable, seemingly, to distinguish between a bicycle accident and the collapse of civilization. (laughs) (laughs) Human interest and stories like this have always been a part of journalism. But but what's happened today is, I have a friend, a fellow journalist named Richard Reeves, who wrote some marvelous books about Kennedy and Nixon. And there was, for a long time, a a celebrated writer here in in New York. A student once asked him, what's your definition of of real news? And he says, real news is the information you and I need to keep our freedom. And and that's the kind of news we're not getting today because so much ownership of uh, of the journalism outlets is in the hands of mega corporations making mega mergers in search of mega profits and you know these mergers are not motivated by any impulse to improve news reporting right they're done to boost the stock or the personal wealth of the executives and two-thirds of today's newspaper markets are monopolies i've got a section in the book talking about how independent newspapers are being gobbled up around the country and the bottom line is that they cut the news coverage cut the number of journalists working for them and cut the news hold 
We couldn't agree more with what Bill Moyers said, but that too was 19 years ago. And we know it with sadness that matters have only gotten much worse. We've come to imagine that we are at least helping good journalists fight back. More recently, Stephen J. Harper, who has appeared on Bill Moyers' site, has said he welcomed the additional exposure we could help provide him. Meanwhile, back at Capitol Public Radio in 2004, Jeffrey Callison was developing a daily local program to talk about things that make up the news in the state capital region. Yours truly, Douglas Everett, was asked if he might like to be the substitute host when Jeffrey went on vacation. Given the fact that we'd done precious few live broadcasts, this was a, a tad daunting. But happily, I did join the team of Callison, producer Benjamin Jonas, and engineer Mark Jones. A lot of good things happened to me over the next couple of years on account of that affiliation. One memorable program I suggested and got to host involved a look back at Watergate. We'd already had Daniel Shore on Radio Parallax. He agreed to join us over at CPR, as did Senator George McGovern, whom I was able to secure through a connection made through some NPR people. McGovern was enjoyable, and when Dan Shore took over the chat with McGovern, I thought this was the sort of thing you just dream about. Here were a couple of favorite moments. Uh, there, there was nothing that happened on 9-11 that was uh, out of Iraq. So that war uh, was waged, I think, in a clear violation of international law. I can't think of anything that Nixon did that's any worse than that. Our topic today is uh, what we might learn from a look back at Watergate and its famed anonymous source, Deep Throat. We're privileged to be joined by former Senator George McGovern, who is uh, remaining with us on the line. Joining us now is Daniel Shore. Mr. Shore carries the title of Senior News Analyst for National Public Radio, whereas he puts it, quote, I no longer devote my time to finding out what people don't want to tell you, but rather take what people have already told us and try and invest it with some meaning. Dan Shore performs his duty for Weekend Edition and All Things Considered. We're very pleased to have him join us today as we look back at the Watergate affair, which he covered for CBS. Welcome to Insight, Daniel Shore. Well, thank you very much, Douglas, especially if I can say hello to my old friend, George McGovern. Well, let, let me add, uh, <laughs> uh, Daniel Shore's name should be added to the Washington Post and Walter Cronkite for doing everything possible to alert the country to what was going on in Watergate. I wish we'd had more people like that. Thanks, George. Former Nixon partisans like Pat Buchanan have denounced Mark Felt's role as a source for Bob Woodward. If I were Pat Buchanan, I would too. <laughs> and it wasn't very good. It was Pat. <laughs> but I, I would ask the both of you: Is the art of the leak not a fundamental method by which political ends are achieved in D.C.? Something practiced by all. That's probably true, but I, I fully agree with what Dan Shore has just said. That sometimes. The only way we can find out what's going on inside the government is from someone uh, who knows what's going on to go to the press and release the uh, information. And, you know, for people like uh, Chuck uh, Colson and Gordon Liddy, both convicted felons, to be lecturing Mark Feld on what is the ethical uh, way to deal with your responsibilities in high office, I think is a bit much. Uh, I don't uh, criticize Pat Buchanan as much as I do these other uh, two. Pat's at least had a fairly honest uh, record. Uh, but these uh, these other two complaining about what a uh, what a bum Mark Felt was in revealing that information, I think, comes from a rather questionable source. 
George, uh, let me bring you up to date. It was Pat Buchanan who got angry at me because I criticized a speech that he had written for President Nixon, and it was the one who had it arranged for me to be subjected to an FBI investigation in the hope of learning something dirty about me. That was Pat Buchanan. Is that right? Well, yep. you've, uh, as usual, you've educated me. A chat with Daniel Ellsberg, who was appearing locally, was especially gratifying. Ellsberg, of course, changed history with his publishing of The Secret Study of the Vietnam War, which revealed just how lied to the public had been about the conflict in Southeast Asia. Well, the Pentagon Papers were a study actually compiled at the Pentagon, not at RAND. They were being stored at RAND when I copied them. And I was doing research on them there for the government when I copied them from the Senate. They ended, it was a study that began in 1945 in, in time. It covered that as a period from 45 to 1968. And my copy actually was done in 69 under a new president, Nixon. So from that point of view, these were just historical documents. So the most recent of them were a year old. Some of them went back uh, more than 20 years. And as such, they couldn't prove what I felt sure to be true, namely that Nixon was following in the footsteps of his four presidential predecessors, that he was deceiving the public in much the same way as, as they had done in terms of what he planned to do, uh, what his aims were, what the likely costs and the risks were, uh, the prospects of what he was doing, which amounted to staying in Vietnam. By the way, it's my belief right now that there's a very strong parallel. I think that President Bush, in fact, expects and intends us to keep a presence in camps and unarmed presence with Iraq indefinitely, and just for the next two years, but as far as he sees it, uh, for the rest of our lifetimes. And yet the public that, that impression at all. That's very similar to the situation I saw in 69. I say that now, now, about Iraq, not as an insider, but uh, at that time I did have inside information as to people in my comparable positions today. And the question was what I could do to really alert the public to what lay ahead. All I could do then was to show them the pattern of past history and to say that uh, the history was repeating itself. I hoped that would cause people at least to question what they were hearing from the White House. I'm afraid it, it didn't have that big effect. It turns out that current documents are what you need if you're to impugn the uh, in sincerity or the truthfulness of a current president. People want to believe that the president currently at the White House, whether they voted for him or not, they don't want to believe he's lying to them. It takes documents to really convince them, though that's perhaps a little less true than it was 30 years ago. Uh, the Pentagon Papers did change that significantly and that people do understand that presidents lie now. But they find it hard still to imagine that they're being deceived as much as they actually are at the given time. In 2004, we put in for a chat with legendary newsman Walter Cronkite for Radio Parallax. It took a while, but Mr. Cronkite finally did come on the show. We think it might have helped that as a student at the University of Texas, he worked at the college radio station. It was great to get his insights, for example, on how the military has altered reporting from war zones. You were a war correspondent for the United Press in World War II. 
And you've expressed some strong resentments in your 1996 autobiography over the military's keeping reporters away from combat zones in Grenada, Panama, and in the first Gulf War. How do you see the current relationship between the military and reporters? Well, in uh, Iraq today, the uh, whole embedment of reporters I thought was a little bit dangerous. The individuals were picked for embedment in particular units uh, and were uh, limited to staying in those units. They could not, in other words, once they decided that that particular unit to which they were embedded was not in action, as happened to some of these poor correspondents who made all of the sacrifice to be there, and then suddenly found that they had pledged to stay uh, without changing, moving any elsewhere with units that were not really in very serious action. As a consequence, some of the television reporting particularly uh, was uh, rather useless. It was the effort of home offices to let a poor reporter who had gone to all the effort and the danger indeed of being in the lines of fire didn't have a story, so they'd put them on anyway. And we got a lot of explanations of how those lights over in the right were really moons and not fire and that kind of thing. Everybody did their best effort. Uh, but I think that it, uh, the idea of giving the commander of the unit a right of censorship, which I gather is the way that it operated, certainly was a mistake. How did it work in World War II? In World War II, we had censorship, and I believe in censorship in wartime, in, uh, among correspondents, uh, war correspondents. You can't by uh, print or radio or now by television. You cannot uh, certainly permit the media to reveal the size of our forces, the losses we've suffered, the kind of material we are committing to the battle. That's all military secrecy that uh, we, we shouldn't be entitled to, and, and the authorities have every right to say you can't print that or you can't broadcast that. That was the rule in World War II, and it worked very well. We were able to get our dispatches out with uh, the stories of how our troops were doing uh, with the modicum of uh, censorship. Now, we're illustrating some serious moments here, but I don't want to give anybody the idea that uh, we abandoned the lighter side. Starting in 2005, we began airing pieces from America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst. We sought out Will after an appearance at the Crest Theater. Our first clip of him here is off the CD he handed to us when we first met. On 0911, where was Cheney? Where was Vice President Cheney? Uh, we don't know. He's been secreted away by the Secret Service, secure location, undisclosed. We have no idea where he is. If we knew, we wouldn't tell you, but we don't know. You don't know where the Vice President? Nope, we have no idea. Don't know. Okay. Where's the president? Ah, oh, he's in Florida. <laughs> yeah, he's on his way to Louisiana. Could be an Air Force base right outside of Baton Rouge, easily accessible on Highway 10. Let's get ahead north to Omaha to refuel before coming back to D.C. due east in the 40th northern degree latitude. Big 747 says Air Force One of the site. Can't miss it. Where's Cheney? We don't know. Am I making this up? On a 0912, structural engineer came on CNN 
explain how the terrorists made this grievous error by hitting the outside of the Pentagon. What they should have done was crashed into the courtyard, then the jet fuel would have sprayed the opposite three sides, the whole thing would have come, shut up! Now that, but our nuclear power plants are awfully vulnerable. All it takes is one little crop duster to fly in this. Shut the hell up! What is wrong with you people? Our own mayor, Willie Brown. And I love Willie, don't get me wrong, man. man. He's the only politician I know who can enter a revolving door behind you and come out first. <laughs> all week long had this bad case of disaster envy. I'm serious, he's walking around town. Well, I don't know why they didn't hit us. We got landmarks too. Golden Gate Bridge, the most photographed object on the face of the planet. We got the pyramid building, financial, shut up! This is not a chamber of commerce moment. This is hide your light under a bushel time. Over the next dozen years, Will Durst would make about 120 appearances on Radio Parallax in future shows where we'll collect together some of our favorite moments with him. As we contemplated uh, our 1,000th show, we, we got rather dissatisfied with the notion that one program could possibly begin to summarize 20-plus years of work with hundreds of guests. If you start airing our programs in sequence at midnight, say the 1st of February, then you're going to need till March 13th to arrive at hour 1,000. And uh, Mr. Merlin advises you not to try that, by the way. We think at this point we're going to have to temporarily cut production of this program to probably, say, twice a month. But along the way, we're going to pull up our favorite moments with authors, educators, filmmakers, scientists, political figures, entertainers, journalists, comedy bits we just made up, and miscellaneous figures. We're guessing that might take 10 programs to get close to being adequate. So I guess we have our work cut out for us for the next few months, Mr. McMillan. One thing we might do is a segment of program, uh, the first segment based on the present, and then the second segment involves looking back. We welcome your suggestions. Feel free to drop us a line via info at radioparallax.com. Anyway, we want to get more clips in. Here's one from a very early show where Dr. Andy joined us in the booth. This was sent to me a few years back about maybe some educational facilities that weren't up to UC Davis standards. Uh, in fact, the story is that in Missouri, the Assistant Attorney General, Eric Veith, got a court order to bar the International Commission for Schools from issuing any further college accreditations in that state after it granted one to a fictitious school created by the Attorney General's office. Veith's office had asked the commission to accredit Eastern Missouri Business College, a college they described as granting doctorates through the mail in fields such as marine biology, <laughs> genetic engineering, and aerospace science. College faculty included, the faculty included Arnold Ziffel, the name of the pig on the old Green Acres television program, Edward J. Haskell from the Leave it to Beaver show, and M. Howard, Jerome Howard, and Lawrence Fine. Yes, the Three Stooges. <laughs> Great educators. They made up a college seal in Latin which read, Solo pro avibus est educatio, and one that said, Latricinia et raptus. Now these translate loosely into English as, Education is for the birds. <laughs> 
and everything from petty theft to highway robbery. <laughs> so uh, this was a school that perhaps needed some looking into, and but yet it was it was accredited. So the commission president George Ryder uh, responded angrily, pointing out. The attorney general made a big deal out of the fact that I didn't know who the Three Stooges were. Well, I've been to about two movies in the last five years, and we don't know Latin. <laughs> they must be so proud. Oh, yes, Dr. Andy of the Poetry and Technology Hour. He's been a very good friend to us all along. In the near future, we want to cite a lot of favorite moments from favorite guests. And we plan to have excerpts from our talks with the following. Authors would include Ray Bradbury, Mary Roach, and David Talbot. Educators would include our pal Dr. Andy Jones, Dr. James Fallon of UCI, and Ira Flato of NPR's Science Friday. Filmmakers will include Alex Gibney, Robert Greenwald, and Michael Bana. Scientists will include physicist Freeman Dyson, planetary scientist Steve Squires, and forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril Wecht. Among our political figures will include Senator Eugene McCarthy, White House aide John Dean, and Congressman Pete McCloskey. Entertainers will include actors Eli Wallach, Carol Channing, and Phil Proctor of the Firesign Theater, not to mention Al Franken. Among journalists, we will cite Craig Unger, Stephen J. Harper, and David K. Johnston. And among our miscellaneous figures will include General Chuck Yeager, Peter Buxton, the man who blew the whistle on the Tuskegee experiment, and Domingo Escobar, who told us how he snuck into the USA from Mexico and stayed. And this list is far from complete. E even reading this partial list of people that we wish to cite is tiring us out. I think we have space for a couple more clips at the tail end of this show. Let's start with a long one. This was our take on a meme that was circulating on the hows and whys of singing the blues. Now, people ask sometimes, well, what is the blues? Thankfully, Martha has sent us an email that should enable us to explain what constitutes the blues in no uncertain terms. All right, this, uh, this email points out that most blues begin with, woke up this morning. Now, I got a good woman is a bad way to begin the blues unless you stick something nasty in the next line, like, I got a good woman with the meanest face in town. <laughs> now, the blues is simple. After you get that first line right, you repeat it, then find something that rhymes with it, like this. Got a good woman with the meanest face in town. Yes, I got a good woman with the meanest face in town. She got teeth like Margaret Thatcher, and she weighed 200 pounds. Now, for those of you who are interested in the blues, we should point out that blues cars consist of Chevys, Fords, old Cadillacs, and broken-down trucks. Blues just don't travel in Volvos, BMWs, or SUVs. Walking plays a major part in the blues lifestyle, and so does Fixin' to Die. Now, teenagers, we're sorry to say, can't sing the blues. They ain't fixing to die yet. It is adults who sing the blues. Now, adulthood is defined as being old enough to get the electric chair if you shoot a man in Memphis. Now, the blues can take place in New York City, but they can't take place in Hawaii or any place in Canada. Hard times in Minneapolis or Seattle is probably just clinical depression. Now, certain things may not qualify for the blues. A man with male pattern baldness ain't the blues. But a woman with male pattern baldness might be. Now, breaking your leg because you were skiing is not the blues. Breaking your leg because the alligator be chomping on it is. 
Now, some good places for the blues might be a highway, the jailhouse, an empty bed, or the bottom of a whiskey glass. Some bad places for the blues would be Nordstrom's, gallery openings, Ivy League colleges, or golf courses. Now, do you have the right to sing the blues? The answer would be yes, if you older than dirt, you blind, you shot a man in Memphis, or you can't be satisfied. It's felt that you cannot, however, sing the blues if you have all your teeth, you were once blind, but now you can see, the man in Memphis lived, or you have a 401k or trust fund. Now, some acceptable blues beverages would be cheap wine, whiskey or bourbon, muddy water, or nasty black coffee. But the following are not blues beverages. Perrier, Chardonnay, Snapple, or Slimfast. And it should be pointed out that people with names like Amber, Jennifer, Tiffany, and Heather can't sing the blues no matter how many men they shoot in Memphis. And lastly, we'd like to give you your own blues name starter kit. What you do is you take the name of a physical infirmity, blindness, being crippled, lame, etc. You need to combine this with the first name of a fruit with the last name of a president. Example, Blind Lemon Jefferson, or alternatively perhaps, Jack Leg Lime Fillmore. We got some feedback on that one, by the way, from none other than Mick Martin, whose program The Blues Party has been a Sacramento institution for decades. Mick did admit that blues songs do often start with Woke Up This Morning, because he said starting with Didn't Wake Up This Morning is surely not going to get you anywhere. And our favorite closing moment might have come from our interview with Walter Cronkite. Mr. Cronkite, we, we have many fine quotes from you that we're going to place in this program, but, but we confess that our favorite quote is about you, coming from your wife, Betsy, a few years back. Mm -hmm. I think I know where this one's going. Yes. Er Errol Flynn died on a 70-foot boat with a 17-year-old girl. Walter's always wanted to go that way, but he's going to have to settle for a 17-footer with a 70-year-old. I'm afraid that's an exact quotation. That's exactly (laughs) what she said to me uh, with uh, that kind of happy smile she had when she pinned me to the wall. Well, would you please give your wife Betsy our best, sir? I certainly shall, and she will appreciate it for coming from such a distinguished group as yours. As a fate would have it, Mr. Cronkite did lose his wife a few months after that interview. We would like to imagine that he told her that some guys at a college radio station had revived her wisecrack with which to close our interview with him, and like to imagine that she got a chuckle out of that. Final item, let's go out with the guy whose phone call started this whole affair, our pal Steve Alexander. We never did the doctor versus lawyer thing exactly, but did call upon him for legal counsel from time to time, and we asked if we could bounce some legal issues off of him. A man serving a prison term for throwing a dog into traffic in a fit of rage three years ago is suing the dead dog's owner and the San Jose Mercury News for 
reporting the story. Andrew Burnett says being publicly labeled a puppy killer caused him mental pain and anguish, humiliation, embarrassment, fright, and shock, and mortification. Well, uh, let me just say this. Even as a liberal, uh, we believe also in accountability. And I think that probably launching the dog out into the Bayshore Freeway uh, into traffic probably caused the dog a lot of mental pain and anguish and uh, ultimately death. Yes, it was fatal to the dog. It was. But, uh, you know, I I think that uh, there's some fundamental problems with the case if you want the legal analysis. I do. Now, has this guy got a case? Could this guy actually pull this off, suing the dog owner in the San Jose Mercury? Is this, uh, this program will be aired publicly, right? No, we're going to air it privately. Well, let's just say this publicly. Let me just reemphasize what apparently was uh, broadcast or published by the San Jose Mercury. This guy is a puppy killer. Well, <laughs> yes, he is. I mean, he, he had a moment of road rage, according to his suit. Uh, reaches into the, um, the window of the uh, middle-aged uh, woman who apparently cut him off. Reached in the window, grabbed the little... Bachon or the little poodle, whatever it was, the little French bulldog, and launched it into the Bayshore Freeway, Highway 101. With fatal results. Fatal results. I'm uh-huh. sure the dog was very flat. And uh, so he is a puppy killer, and truth is a defense. So if he's saying that there's some sort of, it sounds to me, without having looked at the pleadings, the complaint, uh-huh. it sounds like he's alleging that there's been some sort of invasion of privacy that that, you know, he's entitled to some measure of privacy, even though he is, in fact, a puppy killer. Uh-huh. But when they, you know, talked about it publicly, that somehow that invaded his privacy, yeah. and he loses on several accounts. Yeah. When you commit a public act by throwing a dog into traffic, that's it's sort of a... You become a public figure. I would think so. I mean, it's like no, no greater less than Mike Tyson biting off the ear of, uh, what's his name? All right, so he's going to get nowhere with this case. Yeah, he's a public figure. You know, at this point, we have so many people to thank, especially people at KDVS, that we don't even know where to begin. So I guess I'll just say thank you to Mr. McMillan and a thank you to Guy Tortorisi, who's helping air this, our 1,000th program. And I guess who we really should thank is you, the listener. We're probably going to skip a week next week, but we do plan to be back, and we will see you then. This has been Radio Parallax, no less than show number 1,000. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. And our producer is Edward McMillan, who notes he's especially looking forward to show 2000.